We continue in our series through the fruit of the Spirit, and we have come to the final fruit listed in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and then in addition to that, Ephesians 5.18, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The sin of drunkenness has been in the fallen world for thousands of years. It is first recorded in scripture after the flood in the life of Noah, where we read, and he drank of the wine and was drunken in Genesis 9.21. Though no doubt even before the flood, drunkenness was rampant. For we read in Genesis 6-5, though it doesn't specifically mention drunkenness, we certainly must include it in something this broad in general that's stated here. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Drunkenness was prevalent in the ancient world as it is in the modern world. In fact, drunkenness in particular, and in a particular Greco-Roman cult, was one aspect of worship that was offered to that deity, Dionysius, or Bacchus, the God of wine. The Holy Spirit lists drunkenness among the works of the flesh in Galatians 5.21, which then the fruit of the Holy Spirit is given in the verses, verses 22 through 23, in order to overcome drunkenness and all of the works of the flesh that are mentioned there especially the fruit of temperance, the fruit of biblical, godly self-control by the Holy Spirit. Dear ones, the, the wall that we spoke of last Lord's Day, we, we, we spoke of the wall of temperance, the wall of self-control. And when that wall in our lives is breached, that wall of self-control is breached, when it is, is in disrepair, when it falls, then, dear ones, we as Christians are vulnerable to all manner of enemies that would attack both our bodies as well as our hearts. We will then be, as that wall of self-control falls down, we will be under the control of bodily urges or addictions, whether one is controlled by wine, whether one is controlled by 
by food, whether one is controlled by drugs, whether one is controlled by sex, whether one is controlled by riches or by possessions or by fashions, whether one is controlled by music, by pleasure, by sports, whether one is controlled by power, or whether one is controlled by people. All of these will rush in and will take control. When the Bible teaches that it's the Holy Spirit that should have control of our lives. Drunkenness is simply one example, in other words. Though that's what's specifically mentioned in Ephesians 5.18. It is simply one example of addictions in our lives. Wherein self-control in our lives is not exercised. Where the wall falls down and enemies attack the body. We're focusing on this in this sermon and, the, and perhaps a few more. On those enemies that attack the body. Then we will look at enemies that attack the heart. And so we're focusing upon drunkenness. This Lord's Day as one of those enemies that would overwhelm us. Thus, as we address this uh, matter of drunkenness in the sermon this Lord's Day, let us not be as those who would gloat because we are not given over to drunkenness as if that is so far below us, while at the very same time we are given over to all other types of enemies that attack our bodies and bring us under control and submission to their will. The main points for the sermon this Lord's Day are, number one, the enemy identified and prohibited, that is drunkenness. In Ephesians 5, 18a, and the second main point, the wall of defense established, which is the filling with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5, 18b. So in our first main point from the sermon this Lord's Day, the enemy identified and prohibited, namely, drunkenness. In Ephesians 5.18a, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. Just uh, before looking specifically at that verse, just a little background about the letter of Ephesians. The letter of Paul to the Ephesians was written while Paul was in a Roman prison, likely between 60 to 61 AD. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor and was a city in which Paul had actually spent significant time in planting the church there. But as he left, he warned the elders of Ephesus that after his departure, there would arise from their very midst false teachers who, who corrupt the doctrine of Jesus Christ and who teach uh, the people to practice 
that which is contrary to the word of God. The first three chapters of Ephesians uh, are more of a uh, doctrinal nature, focusing on the sovereignty of God in salvation, focusing on the foundation of Jesus Christ in, in this new spiritual building that is being built called his church. A church which makes no distinction in its membership between male or female, between slave or free, or between Jew or Gentile. And then in the last three chapters of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, Paul focuses more of his attention on application, applying the doctrine that was taught to them in the first three chapters. Dear ones, doctrine is is never intended by the Holy Spirit to be merely lodged in our minds and kept there. It is always, without exception, to be applied and practiced in our lives, in the way we speak, the way we think, the way we act, whether when we are all alone and no one sees us, whether we are with our families, whether we are at work, whether we are at church, we are to practice that doctrine in our lives. Well, Paul sets this example for us in his epistles that he very often lays out the doctrine, the foundation, but then applies it to our lives. That's the way... Faithful preaching should be as well. It lays out the doctrine, the teaching of Scripture, and then it seeks to apply that teaching in our lives. As we turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 5, wherein is our text for this Lord's Day, Paul addresses our our love-bound duty to avoid the wicked practices of the surrounding pagan and worldly culture there in Ephesus, and to completely break away from the vices in which even they themselves had once walked before being converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul particularly cautions them in Ephesians 5.18 against drunkenness. And the wicked self destructive behavior that accompanies that particular sin. And he exhorts them to withstand by the power of the Holy Spirit such bodily attacks from the promiscuous culture in which they lived. Which is very much like our own promiscuous culture. More and more and increasingly so. As we now consider our text in Ephesians 5.18, let us first understand the prohibition that is given, and be not drunk with wine. This prohibition is in the present tense in the Greek text. That is used here as a command, and it is also used with the negative, not. 
Be not drunk with wine. Now, I believe this is very important to understand. For by this particular construction, the present tense and the negative not, it's a prohibition in the present tense. Paul is actually prohibiting activity, namely drunkenness here, that is presently going on within the church of Ephesus. That's what this particular construction would imply. Paul is not so much prohibiting prohibiting an activity that has no uh, experience, that is not being practiced at all within the church of Ephesus, but one that is in fact being practiced. And and if we were to uh, translate this in a way that helps us understand what Paul is actually saying here, it would be this way. It would be formed in this manner. Stop being drunk with wine. Stop being drunk with wine. And so this implies that there were those in the Ephesian church that were giving themselves to drunkenness, perhaps from the uh, the pagan and uh, uh, cultural religious practices of Ephesus, or perhaps even from an antinomian spirit from these false teachers uh, that were leading them astray, saying, you know, it's okay to get drunk. See, this is not a, a potential problem within the church of Ephesus, according to the Apostle Paul, but it is an actual problem that presently needed to be addressed. Dear ones, just as there is no Christian that is beyond reformation and sanctification, there is no church, not even an, an apostolic church, that is beyond reformation and sanctification. We ought to unite with that church that has the most faithful terms of communion, but even such a church has so much room for growth and sanctification. There is never a place for a church to boast in pride. Never. As we consider this prohibition against drunkenness, let us first consider what drunkenness is not, and then we will consider what drunkenness is. What drunkenness is not, first of all? Well, drunkenness is not drinking wine or other fermented beverages in moderation. Drinking in moderation is not herein prohibited or forbidden. Drunkenness is what is prohibited and forbidden. The scripture, dear ones, does not condemn the use of alcoholic beverages. It condemns the abuse of alcoholic beverages, that is, drunkenness. Fermented beverages are not sinful in themselves. God has created all matter. Uh, He did not create matter sinful. But fermented beverages are actually a part of that which God has made for man's enjoyment, according to Psalm 104, verses 14 through 15, where we read, He, that is God, causeth the grass to grow for the cattle, 
and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth and wine. The Hebrew word is yayin. And wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. Interestingly, the word that's used here for wine in Psalm 104, verses 14 through 15, yayin, it's the same word that's used throughout the Old Testament and in particular those places where we find, for example, Noah becoming drunk. He became drunk through an abuse of yayin, of wine. It's likewise the same word that is used in Proverbs 9, 5, where we read of divine wisdom. Divine wisdom is personified and calls out unto us and unto the people, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine, yayin, which I have mingled. Now, obviously, that's figurative. We're not saying that is literal. Nevertheless, the fact that God would use that as a figure in the personification of wisdom, divine wisdom indicates there's nothing inherently wrong or sinful with wine or any alcoholic or fermented beverage. Even new wine, sometimes there may be those who say, well, wine was fermented but new wine was not fermented. New wine could not intoxicate, but wine can intoxicate. And so there are many ways in which I believe people will try to, uh, to avoid the, the, the right conclusion. And that is that even, in this case, even new wine is not unfermented. It is fermented as well and able to make one drunk when it is abused. For in Acts chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, we read, Others mocking said, this is after hearing uh, the apostles uh, speaking in other languages of the world, so that those Jews who were gathered there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost could, could understand the great things of God in their own languages. And there we read, that those who were gathered there, uh, some of them mocked them. Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. Notice, for these are not drunken, well, they, they said that they were full of new wine. That was what they mocked them. They were full of new wine. But Peter says, you know, you just said that they were drunk. But they are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. So, yes, even new wine was able to intoxicate, was able to make one drunk if it was abused. I think it's also... Interesting that the, the use of wine in Scripture is, is not limited 
to the privacy of one's home, but was even used for public occasions as well. For example, the wine, and in the Greek language, oinos, the wine that Jesus made from water for a social occasion, namely a wedding in John chapter 2, verse 9, is the same wine, or oinos, that was able to make one drunk when abused, because that's the same word that we find in Ephesians 5.18, and be not drunk with wine, oinos. It's also, I think, worth noting that there is a word in both the Hebrew language and in the Greek language that means grape juice, unfermented. In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it's only used one time. It's only used one time, and that's in Numbers 6.3, where the Nazarite is not only forbidden from drinking wine, that is yayin, but is also forbidden from drinking strong drink, shakar, Hebrew word is shakar, but is also prohibited from drinking grape juice, mishra, and is also forbidden from from eating grapes or raisins or anything that comes from the grape. And likewise, in, in the Greek language, there is a word that means grape juice. The Greek word is trucks, trucks. And you know, that Greek word, though, though it's used in secular Greek, Though it's used outside of the scriptures, it's never once used in the New Testament. There were perfectly good words that could have been used if God intended to communicate to his people that they were not to drink fermented beverages, but only to drink unfermented beverages. But God, the Holy Spirit, does not use either of those terms. Because something God gives to man for his good may be abused is no reason to forbid the moderate and lawful use of that gift. People abuse money all the time. Should we outlaw money? People abuse cars, run over other people, kill people with cars. Should we outlaw cars? Some of our politicians may get to that point after they try to remove uh, firearms. Uh, cars are deadly. They probably kill more people uh, uh, each year than firearms. Uh, food can be abused. Does that mean we ought not to practice the lawful use of food just because people can, uh, can delve into gluttony? Or the opposite extreme of anorexia, bulimia. Sex certainly is abused all around us today. Should we outlaw sex in marriage? It's lawful use because it is abused outside of marriage. Authority certainly is abused. But that, does that mean that we should remove the authority of a, 
of a father and a mother within the home because, because there is the abuse of authority. You see, any good gift from God can be abused and will be abused by sinful man. But that's all the more reason for Christians not to bow to the demands of the heathen who want to take away these good gifts of God from us, but to use and to practice these good gifts under submission and under control of the Holy Spirit. And dear ones, the general principles, two general principles always apply in this and and in all areas of our life. First of all, the general principle of glorifying God. What we eat and drink, and whatsoever we do in 1 Corinthians 10.31, glorifying God. If we're not glorifying God in the use of wine or anything else, then we are sinning. We're not seeking to glorify God, but simply to spend it upon our own bodily appetites, merely. Then we are sinning against God. And the second principle is this, that in what we do, whether we eat or drink, whatsoever we do, we should also always have in view not only uh, our, our own rights, our Christian liberty, but also we should have in view our brethren. Glorify God, and in what we do, or in what we voluntarily restrain ourselves from doing, we do so out of love for brethren who, again, may not have come to that particular uh, informed position, revealed truth from God's word, and they would be terribly offended uh, by uh, that. Well, I think that, again, our, our duty and obligation is not to flaunt our liberty in front of people, but to show love for one another. Paul says that even if he would go without he would go without eating meat forever if it meant that he would not lead a fellow brother or sister into sin or offend them by way of causing them to stumble in some way. Dear ones, love of our brethren must prevail even in the use of our Christian liberties that God has given to us. Because love edifies. Love promotes edification amongst Christian brethren and seeks to do so. And so drunkenness, first of all, is not the lawful moderate use of wine or other fermented beverages. But secondly, drunkenness is not using alcoholic beverages for medicinal purposes. In 1 Timothy 5.23, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, uh, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. It has medicinal value as well. 
alcoholic beverages do when used moderately. In fact, I have numerous reports in my files at home of medical studies done in which the moderate use of red wine in particular is cited as being of benefit in reducing the risk of arthritis, cancer, heart disease, stroke, digestive problems, and diabetes. When used in moderation, under the control of the Holy Spirit, wine is of benefit to the body, as the Holy Spirit teaches here through the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 5.23. We've looked at what drunkenness is not. Now let's consider what drunkenness is. Drunkenness is a serious sin and is condemned in Scripture by the Holy Spirit. We read in Isaiah 5.11, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. Likewise, in our text, Ephesians 5.18, And be not drunk with wine. I want you to understand that drunkenness is is a sin. It's not an illness. It's not an illness. As is promoted by various 12-step programs, AA, various programs of that nature, that treat drunkenness as, as a physical, psychological illness and even an incurable illness. An incurable illness. Where is the hope Where is the help that one who is drunk and given to drunkenness can find in covering over what he has and simply calling it an incurable disease? Dear ones, there is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ delivers those who are given to drunkenness and every other bodily appetite that overwhelms a person in one's sin and grants to them freedom. Freedom. Dear ones, the only hope and help we do have is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Jesus is able to deliver us from sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he lists various types of sins. They're a grocery list of, of very serious sins, and one of them is a drunkard, one who is given over to drunkenness, one whose life is characterized by drunkenness. And he says, And such were some of you. Not 
And such are some of you. Because they have been delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Drunkenness in the Bible, dear ones, is not defined by way of percentage of blood alcohol concentration, whatever that percentage that a particular state within our country might determine uh, uh, that if one reaches that particular percentage, he is intoxicated or she is intoxicated and, uh, uh, and, can, and, and is subject to uh, various types of penalties while driving. The Bible doesn't give us that type of information, you know, as to percentage of, of, uh, of blood alcohol concentration. But rather what the Bible does is illustrates for us how one behaves and acts when one is drunk. For example, and, I, and these, I've got a, about five verses here that, that I think give us some illustration of uh, what drunkenness is by way of an uncontrolled behavior. Psalm 107, verse 27, we read, They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. So here we find a drunkard is characterized by one who cannot maintain his balance. He's he's going back and forth. He's staggering. He's falling. But also a drunkard is characterized by it affecting his perception. He's at wit's end. His wits are affected. His perception, his faculty of perception and, and being able to speak or to think clearly is affected as well. Proverbs 23, verse 29 through 30. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Contentions, fighting. Um, one who is a drunkard is one usually given over to, to uh, contention. Who hath babbling, slurred speech. Who hath wounds without cause. Well, he's taken a few punches, perhaps. Who hath redness of eyes. They that tarry long at the wine. Isaiah 19.14 They have caused Egypt to err and every work thereof as a drunken man staggereth in his vomit. Very very often those who are drunk uh, have that reflex vomiting up what's on their stomach staggering about falling to the ground Lamentations 4.21 Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom that dwellest in the land of Uz. The cup also shall pass through unto thee. Thou shalt be drunken and shall make thyself naked. 
those who are drunken are often totally out of control. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, and they do uh, many times very immoral things in a state of drunkenness. They're certainly responsible for what they do, even in a state of drunkenness, but they do, the scripture says, things of this nature. And then in, finally in Revelation 17 too, speaking of the whore Babylon, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, though, again, I think we probably should look at this in a spiritual uh, respect, the wine of her fornication, perhaps even the wine being the, the idolatry of, of the cup, um, that uh, by way of uh, their uh, uh, ungodly claim that they are able to turn normal, ordinary wine into the actual blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which then corrupts and causes the nations to commit spiritual fornication against the Lord God. But again, if the figure has no basis in reality at all, it becomes kind of a use, useless figure. And so those given to drunken, those given to drunkenness are often those who are very much given as well to fornication other forms of immorality. You see, drunkenness is not a sin that simply or usually remains by itself. Drunkenness, like other sins, has various sins that accompany it and flow from it. <clears throat> the self-destructive nature of this sin of drunkenness is evident in the words that immediately follow and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. The word uh, translated excess basically means without health. Without health. And it comes to refer to one who, by his drunkenness, is destroying himself. Destroying himself spiritually. Destroying himself bodily. Destroying himself financially. Destroying himself familiarly in his relationships with his family. Destroying himself reputationally. His reputation and his name means nothing. You see, all bodily addictions are in some sense self-destructive. Whether one is consumed with food with riches, with possessions, with sex, or with the body. They're all self-destructive to varying degrees. Drunkenness is a sin, dear ones, because it controls us. And we then are not under the control of the Holy Spirit. We are rather under the control of this particular drink, this substance under its control. And we are not, dear ones, we are not to be under the control of anyone or anything but the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit. 
Christians are to have, dear ones, only one master. Jesus says you cannot have two masters. Christians are to have only one master, Jesus Christ. Thus, when food controls us, whether eating beyond measure or going to the opposite extreme, starving ourselves to look like a model, when sex controls us, whether by means of what we watch, whether by means of what we listen to, or whether by means of what we partake of by way of fornication, actual bodily fornication, whether it's self-abuse that we exercise, or whether it's fornication with someone else by way of sexual immorality, it's that that controls us. It's not the Holy Spirit that's controlling us at that time. It is that particular that particular sin that is controlling us. When riches control us, see we're talking about things that affect the body here, not that they don't have any uh, prior effect upon the mind, the heart, but these are particular sins that gain control over us. Drunkenness, sexual immorality, uh, our being so concerned about our 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 body and what it looks like. Riches can control us so that we covet what we do not have and we fear losing what we do have. And as I said, our body can control us by way of making our body an idol that we serve, that we flaunt before others. A body which we must clothe with the most recent fads and fashions in order to fit in. Rather than following the biblical mandate of modesty. Of modesty. When that happens, regardless of what controls us, dear ones, we are sinning against the Lord God. We're sinning against the Holy Spirit by being under the control of someone or something other than the Holy Spirit. And that's what characterizes drunkenness. And it's what characterizes all manner of sin that breaks through the wall of self-control and temperance that the Lord has established around every Christian, that is a fruit of the Spirit that he's implanted in every Christian. We have, by God's grace, dear ones, the ability to withstand all of these particular attacks against us, against our bodies. Jesus Christ, dear ones, is Lord. And he's Lord over both our body and our spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.20, we read, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Which are God's. The best of Christians need to be cautioned against the worst of sins. None of us are above falling into even the worst of sins. No previous consistency of walk 
ought to give to any of us a false security that our wall of self-control cannot be breached, especially if we take little care to examine that wall of self-control, take little care to fortify it by means of the Holy Spirit and, and the means of grace that God has given to us, and being filled daily with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 10.12 is a constant warning to all of us every single day. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Lest he fall. Why do people become drunk with wine or with other fermented beverages? Well, you have probably either said it yourself in the in times past or you have heard it said by others to party and to have a good time let's enjoy ourselves it's a day of celebration maybe a wedding a, a birthday a weekend whatever it may be let's just enjoy ourselves and one thing leads to another and leads to drunkenness or Perhaps it could be said to give one a sense of boldness in facing a very difficult person or, or situation. Sometimes people drink because they're afraid of facing a situation or facing a person. Or thirdly, to drown uh, sorrow, pain, heartache that seems too much to bear. They drown, try and drown their sorrows. Fourthly, to let down inhibition so that one supposedly then can enjoy being around others. And so, with that particular thought in mind, one, again, probably isn't going to draw the line where one ought to draw the line. Because as long as there, there, there are those inhibitions, one is going to take another drink, and then another drink, and then another drink, till all the inhibitions are gone. And lastly, there may be others, but the last one I mentioned is some drink or become drunk to be fashionable. Be fashionable, to fit in with the crowd after, every, after all, everyone is doing it. The Lord says, follow not the multitude to do evil. Don't have a herd mentality. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ as he sets the path before us. Dear ones, drunkenness is not God's answer for any excuse one may offer. Drunkenness will not be of help in overcoming a problem in our life. It will only make things worse. And drunkenness or other bodily addictions that we have already cited will not be the only sin, as I said earlier, that breaks through the wall of biblical self-control, but many other sins will accompany it, whether rage or lust, whether immor immorality or loss of family, or loss of job. And most importantly, 
lost of communion with Jesus Christ? The answer, as we shall see, is not to be controlled by your appetites. Not be controlled by wine, not be controlled by anyone or anything else, but to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Joy, peace, comfort, courage, and all that we need is found in Jesus Christ and is supplied to us by the Holy Spirit. The second main point, which we'll move much more quickly through, having laid that foundation. The second main point, the wall of defense established, the filling with the Holy Spirit, where we read in Ephesians 5, 18, the first part, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, the second part, but be filled with the Spirit. Here we see the contrast that will fortify the wall of temperance or self-control against the attack of drunkenness and other bodily addictions. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. There was this command, like the previous one, is in the present tense, but there's no negative, there's not a not uh, associated with it. But it is in the present tense. In other words, uh, the, the sense of this command is be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, once a year, uh, once a month. Be continually filled daily throughout the day with the Holy Spirit. And dear ones, we will never be filled with the Holy Spirit if we are not focusing our mind, our heart, our faith, our love, our joy upon the Holy Spirit and upon what He grants to us in Christ Jesus as our inheritance, applying what He is, what the Lord Jesus has purchased for us in our own lives. You see, what characterizes the Christian is not being under the control of wine or self, or under the control of anyone or anything else, but being under the control of the Holy Spirit, who then controls the self. Self-control is actually, again, not that the self is in control, but the Holy Spirit controls the self. This is the fruit of the Spirit that Christ has given to us in order to keep the enemies at bay, to keep the enemies within and the enemies without from breaking through and overwhelming us. This fruit of the spirit of temperance and self-control. Dear ones, that fruit of the spirit that God has given to us is our wall of defense. And when it falls, because we have not inspected it recently, because we have not fortified it daily, because we have not learned from past breaches in the wall of self-control what attacks we are particularly vulnerable to and have not taken any other measures than what we would ordinarily take, 
Well, when the wall breaches, when that attack comes from that same enemy, we ought not to be surprised because we have not fortified it. We have left the breach as it was. Or simply covered it over with a thin layer of mortar. In Galatians 5.23, the King James Version uses the word temperance for this fruit of the Spirit. Other English versions use the word self-control. Now, both of these words, I believe, are subject to some misunderstanding and therefore require some clarification. Temperance actually means moderation and not total abstinence. But as a result of the temperance movement back in the 19th century, the word became associated with total abstinence from all fermented beverages. The temperance movement led to the enacting of the 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution in 1920, which prohibited manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within, into, or out of the United States and all its territories. It was repealed in 1933. Therefore, it should be noted, dear ones, that the biblical fruit of temperance, when applied to the use of fermented beverages, does not mean total abstinence, but rather means the spirit-controlled moderation in the use of fermented beverages. That's what the word actually means. I would also note in regard to the term self-control, which we addressed in the previous sermon to some extent, that we must make some clarification about it as well. This fruit of the spirit of self-control is not a natural determination. It is not a mere self-restraint. It is not a mere self-resolve reaching deep down inside of the natural man to resist certain temptations, but is rather the supernatural fruit of submitting our bodies and our hearts unto the control of the Holy Spirit. The self, dear ones, as I said earlier, is not in control, but is rather under the control of the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit being self-control. So, what is it, then, to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What is it to, to have this fullness of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's not merely to have the Holy Spirit living and abiding within your life, but it is, it is to desire more of the Spirit, or better, to yield more of yourself to the Spirit, and to fervently pray for the Spirit of God to work in you, to use you, to glorify Christ through you and to bear his fruit in you, to control your decisions, to control your affections, to control your plans 
to control your, your work, to control your possessions, to control your family, to control your life so that he controls you more than wine controls the drunkard. From the immediate context, to be filled with the Spirit would seem to involve a number of steps, a number of ideas in the life of a Christian. For example, in Ephesians 5.11, and so we're looking at uh, this, the context around which being filled with the Spirit occurs, and we find a number of things. Uh, in Ephesians 5.11, it is to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. It's, it is not to cozy up to that which uh, is contrary to the revealed word of God. It's, it's to expose the works of darkness, not to familiarize yourself and to fit in with the works of darkness. That's being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is to walk as wise and not as fools, Paul says in Ephesians 5.15. To walk as wise means, again, the knowledge we have in doctrine, we're applying in our lives. That's wisdom. Application of knowledge to every area of our life. To be filled with the Spirit, in Ephesians 5.16, is to redeem the time, not to waste our time, not to waste our lives on pleasures and foolishness, upon things that, that please us, but to give our lives over to that which pleases God. Be filled with the Spirit is be growing in knowledge of God's revealed will and doing it in Ephesians 5.17. To be filled with the Spirit, dear ones, is to worship. To worship in the purity of worship. In spirit and truth, according to Ephesians 5.19-20. Wherein we are commanded to sing those hymns, songs, spiritual songs that God has given to us in his word. Be filled with the Spirit is to submit in the Lord to one another in Ephesians 5.21, submitting yourselves one to another. So there are many things that are involved and that would characterize one who is filled with the Spirit. But in essence, it's giving our lives over to the control of the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, dear ones, is surrendering all to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we grow in giving ourselves and everyone and everything else around us to the control of the Holy Spirit. For the more we surrender to and give to the Holy Spirit, the more he fills us with himself. Imagine that our life is a cup. The more that there is us in that cup. There's only, if, 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 if what fills the cup is this much of us, and there's only that much left then for the Holy Spirit, well, that's not being full of the Holy Spirit. The more we give up of ourselves to the Lord, the more or the less and less and less there is of us and more that the Holy Spirit fills and controls our lives. You see, being filled with the Spirit is 
calling out to the Lord and saying, it is less of me and more of thee that I desire. Less of me and more of thee. It is emptying myself of what pleases me so that I might be filled with what pleases thee. It is crucifying me to the world and the world to me that more of Christ might live in me. I so much appreciate these closing thoughts found in the letters of Samuel Rutherford. This is letter 223. Let pleasures be crucified and riches be crucified and court and honor be crucified. And since the apostle saith that the world is crucified to him, we may put this world to the hanged man's doom and to the gallows. And who will give much for a hanged man? A little should we give for a hanged and crucified world. Yet what a sweet smell hath this dead carrion that is flesh, dead flesh, to many fools in the world. Fools are pulling it off the gallows and contending for it. Oh, when will we learn to be mortified men and to have our fill of those things that have but their short summer quarter of this life? If we saw our Father's house and that great and fair city, the New Jerusalem, which is up above the sun and moon, we would cry to be over the water and be carried in Christ's arms out of this borrowed prison. See, Rutherford understood, yes, we must empty ourselves of the world, of the flesh, but we must be filled with the Holy Spirit and with a vision of what Christ has purchased for us that far surpasses anything here upon this earth. Beloved, to have more of the Spirit is to give up more of yourself to the Holy Spirit. To be growing in the fruit of self-control is to be growing in being controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. The wall of temperance and self-control will only stand, dear ones, against bodily urges and addictions like drunkenness if you are daily being filled with the Holy Spirit. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, glory be to thy Name, Lord, exalt thyself in our hearts, in our minds. Show us, O oh God, the, the corrupting flesh 
that we so often pull down from that cross, that corrupting flesh of the world that we so often cling to, that we would so often have. Oh, Lord, help us to see it, it stinks, it's corrupting, it's foul. Help us, our Lord and our God, to, by thy grace, by the fruit of temperance and self-control, to build that wall against, against uh, those enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Oh, Lord, we plead with thee. We thank thee, our God, that there is power in the Holy Spirit. There is power in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not, dear one, dear, dear God, we are not powerless through Christ and through the Holy Spirit before these enemies. So, Lord, we pray, cast our eyes upon that glorious future that thou hast prepared for us, that we may be able to withstand the enemy every single day by being filled with the Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.